From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. A family moves to a small Alaska village because they believe it will be a good, safe environment where they can raise their children. Then, the unthinkable happens. 11-year-old Mandy LaMere only had to walk a short distance to her girlfriend's house. But when she did not arrive, the entire village began to search for her. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Taslina, Alaska, an unincorporated village located 187 miles, or 300 kilometers, northeast of Anchorage, is nestled along the banks of the Copper River. In 1991, 241 people lived in Taslina. 11-year-old Mandy LaMere, her parents, and brothers had just moved to Taslina from Anchorage a year earlier. Mandy's parents felt Taslina would be a safer place to raise their children and a place where the kids could learn to hunt, and fish and enjoy the Alaska outdoors. Soon after moving to Taslina, Mandy made friends with Erin, a girl who lived three quarters of a mile down the road. On August 22, 1991, with only a few days left before the beginning of the school year, the girls asked their parents if they could get together to play. Mandy invited Erin to her house, and with their parents' permission, Mandy planned to walk halfway to Erin's house, where the two girls would meet and then return to Mandy's house. Mandy's mother was reluctant to let her daughter walk by herself, not because she was worried about humans, but because they lived in the Alaska wilderness, and she was concerned Mandy might run into a bear or a moose. Mandy would not have to walk far, though, before meeting Erin and Mandy's mother watched her walk down the road. Mandy had long blonde hair and wore a pink jacket. Mandy's mother knew Mandy would only be out of her sight for a short while before she rendezvoused with Aaron. A half hour later, Aaron arrived alone at the LaMere house. She said she saw no sign of Mandy during her walk. She waited for Mandy for several minutes at the halfway point, but then decided to walk the rest of the way to Mandy's house on her own. Mandy's parents, Valerie and Dave, were not immediately concerned and guessed the two girls had just somehow missed each other. They followed the path Mandy would have taken along the neighborhood airstrip, but when they saw no sign of their daughter, they alerted others in the small village, and soon, neighbors organized a community-wide search. Searchers thought perhaps Mandy stepped off the main path into the woods to avoid a wild animal and became disoriented and got lost. 
Could Mandy have fallen into the Copper River? The Copper River, with its swift current, is known to swallow humans when their clothes fill with its heavy silt and they sink to the bottom, never to be seen again. Dave Lemaire rejected the possibility Mandy got lost and walked the wrong direction. He had spent a great deal of time in the woods with Mandy and knew she was familiar with the area, comfortable around bears and moose, and could find her way home. Dave Lemaire feared a human predator took Mandy. Mandy's parents contacted the Alaska State Troopers in Glen Allen, and the troopers immediately launched a search for Mandy. The troopers used helicopters to fly over the area where Mandy disappeared, and they brought in tracking dogs to follow Mandy's scent. The dogs followed Mandy's trail from her house to the midway point where she was supposed to meet Aaron. Then her scent disappeared. Dave and Valerie Lemaire assured troopers Mandy would not run away from home, and they said she understood the dangers of the world and would not get into a car with a stranger. Troopers did not see any signs of an animal attack, and, like Mandy's father, they began to fear someone abducted Mandy. Searchers drove up and down the Richardson Highway looking for any sign of the 11-year-old girl, and volunteers combed the forest on foot. Her parents waited near the phone, and her father decorated her room with purple balloons and ribbons in anticipation of welcoming her home. Since Mandy knew not to get into a car with a stranger, did she know her abductor? Could her kidnapper be one of the residents of Tiny Taslina? After looking for Mandy for more than a week with no results, troopers told residents it might be time to call off the search. Locals refused to quit, though, and instead organized a second, more thorough search of the three-square-mile grid around the area where the search dog lost Mandy's scent. The area skirted the banks of the Copper River and paralleled the Richardson Highway. Civil Air Patrol planes searched from the air while hikers on the ground pushed their way through the thick brush. The search came to an end when a volunteer found Mandy's body in a ditch only one mile from her home, in an area residents and troopers had previously searched. Mandy Lemaire had been missing for 10 days when the searcher found her body. Mandy's grief-stricken father asked a friend to come to his house and remove his guns because he feared he would be tempted to take justice into his own hands if he had easy access to a firearm. A preliminary investigation revealed Mandy was raped and shot in the head twice with a small-caliber weapon. The medical examiner pinpointed the murder weapon as a 22 caliber and specified the murderer raped Mandy with an inanimate object. The pathologist also noted a cut on Mandy's lip and determined Mandy sustained the injury at least 12 hours before she died. What terrors did Mandy experience before her death? Defensive wounds on Mandy's hands showed she fought her attacker, 
and according to Trooper Investigator Jim McCann, Mandy was first shot in the face while she looked up at her attacker, and then when she slumped forward, her killer shot her in the top of the head. Alaska State Troopers said they were looking at several possible suspects. Residents of Taslina feared the murderer was one of their neighbors, and quite possibly one of the people who had been part of the search party. If the killer helped with the search, then he would know what areas had been covered, allowing him to move Mandy's body to a recently searched location. The remote area where searchers found Mandy's body also suggested her killer must be someone local, because the area could only be accessed by a series of twisting trails known only to those who lived in Taslina. Although investigators announced publicly that they were looking at several different suspects for the murder of Mandy LaMare, they mainly focused on one man, Charles H. Smithart, 61, a retired laborer and handyman. Smithart had a wife and six kids in California, but he'd moved back to Alaska to live near his mother, a well-respected village elder. From the beginning, investigators noted Smithhart's obsession with Mandy's disappearance. Smithhart, who was usually a loner and kept to himself, was one of the first to volunteer to search for Mandy. After searchers found Mandy, investigators did not release information about the condition of her body. Mandy was missing her pants and shoes, but police purposely withheld this information from the public. As Smithart stood next to a trooper, watching a helicopter fly low overhead soon after Mandy's body was found, he told the trooper he assumed those in the helicopter were searching for Mandy's clothes. Only someone involved in murdering Mandy and dumping her body would know she was missing some of her clothes. Let me take a short break so I can thank the folks at the puzzle game app Best Fiends for sponsoring Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. As many of you know, my husband and I own a wilderness lodge, and while I love what I do, it is hard work. By the end of the day, I am exhausted, both mentally and physically. When I finally sit down to write, my brain is too tired to research a true crime story. Instead, I walk away from my computer, pick up my phone, and play Best Fiends for 20 minutes. Not only do the funny, bright characters energize me, but the challenging puzzles sharpen my mind and help me focus. After only a few minutes of Best Fiends, I am ready to dive into the research and write my story. I am currently on level 417 in Best Fiends, and I have discovered the subtle difficulties of matching colored light bulbs. <laughs> I love the new things that puzzle designers create, but I think I am most challenged by the puzzles that appear the simplest. When I am tasked with collecting 100 flowers and 100 leaves, I struggle to remember I must collect them evenly. If I first concentrate on the leaves, the game will not offer me enough flowers to win. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect 
tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Troopers received an important tip from Dave DeForest, a local truck driver and construction worker. DeForest claimed he saw Charlie Smithart in his tan pickup truck around 3 p.m. on the day Mandy LaMare disappeared. DeForest watched Charlie turn onto Taslina Terrace Drive, the road where Mandy lived, only minutes before Mandy vanished. Since Dave DeForest was a convicted felon, troopers might have questioned his unsolicited tip. But Charlie Smithart's cousin, Tanya Nutter, also came forward to say she saw Charlie's pickup on Mandy's Road around the same time. Some in Taslina felt Dave DeForest should be considered a suspect in the kidnapping and murder of Mandy LaMare. But DeForest had an alibi. He was working when Mandy disappeared, hauling dirt to his boss's house. His fellow workers would have noticed if he'd left his job for a prolonged period. Investigators obtained a search warrant for Smithart's home and truck, but they found little evidence. They found rifles, but they did not find the twenty-two caliber handgun they believed was used to murder Mandy. They gathered two blonde hairs and several red and blue fibers from Smithart's truck. In Smithart's shop, they found a bloody paper towel and metallic particles like those produced by industrial grinders and welding equipment. On Mandy's body, investigators found more red and blue fibers and fine metallic particles. They soon learned the two hairs removed from Smithart's truck were a match to Mandy LaMare's hair. Prosecutors believed the hair and other physical evidence would be more than enough to convict Charles Smithart of the kidnapping and murder of Mandy LaMare. Charlie Smithart's mother provided Charlie with an alibi. She said Charlie was home with her when Mandy disappeared, and they were watching Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy. Cash register receipts from the grocery store, however, proved Charlie's mother was shopping for groceries and not home watching television with her son during the time in question. Most of Charlie Smithart's friends and relatives did not believe Charlie could murder a little girl, and his mother was shocked when the troopers arrested Charlie. Smithart was held on $450,000 bail. A grand jury indicted him, and he pleaded not guilty to all charges. The prosecution team had little other than circumstantial evidence against Charles Smithart but they presented the evidence in a logical, compelling manner. The source of the red and blue fibers could not be pinpointed, 
but the prosecutor explained how investigators were able to positively match fibers on Mandy LaMare's body to fibers recovered from a pair of coveralls stuffed behind the seat in Smithhart's pickup. The metallic particles found on Mandy were similar to particles found in Smithhart's truck and in his workshop. Most damning of all, though, were the two blonde hairs from Mandy LaMare found in Smithhart's pickup. One of Smithhart's five adult daughters told detectives Charlie had molested her and her sisters when they were children. Several young girls in Taslina testified about strange encounters they'd had with Smithhart in the weeks before Mandy disappeared. Two girls recalled Smithhart following them in his truck while they rode their bicycles. Both girls had long blonde hair like Mandy. Smithhart's attorney argued Dave DeForest should not be believed because he was a known liar and a convicted felon. The judge, though, refused to allow defense counsel to suggest Dave DeForest might be the actual murderer. The judge stated no evidence existed which tied DeForest to the abduction and murder of Mandy LaMare. The jury found Charles Smithart guilty on all counts, and the judge sentenced him to 114 years in prison. In 1999, the Alaska Supreme Court threw out the conviction of Charles Smithart and ordered a new trial. The court based this decision on the grounds that the trial judge prohibited the defense attorney from arguing it was Dave DeForest and not Charles Smithart who kidnapped, raped, and murdered Mandy LaMare. Before Smithart could be retried, he died in jail from lung cancer. According to Alaska law, Smithart could not be found guilty of murdering Mandy LaMare because he died before his second trial. Trooper investigator Jim McCann said he harbored no doubt it was Charles Smithart who abducted and murdered Mandy LaMare. If Smithart's sexual abuse of his daughters had been reported sooner, perhaps Smithart would have been confined to a cell where he belonged long before he had the chance to kidnap, rape, and murder Mandy LaMare. I only hope Smithart's daughters have been able to find the help and counseling they deserve after such a traumatic childhood. The ugly problem of violence against women in Alaska, and especially sexual abuse against Native women, is not new. And for it to go away, attitudes need to change. Public service television ads now air, featuring village elders explaining how women should be valued, honored, and treated with respect. Alaska even has adopted a version of the Me Too movement as Native women begin to open up and report instances of sexual violence. Unfortunately, sexual violence in Alaska still reigns as a top issue. In September 2018, 10-year-old Ashley Johnson Barr was raped, murdered, and discarded on the tundra outside of Kotzebue in northwestern Alaska. Authorities and citizens searched for Ashley for several days before they discovered her body. 
but Alaska state troopers had little doubt who had abused and killed her. Not long after they found Ashley's remains, troopers arrested 41-year-old Peter Wilson, and prosecutors charged him with murder, kidnapping, and sexual abuse of a minor. Wilson was a local resident, and sadly, after his arrest, two of his female relatives admitted he repeatedly raped them when they were children. Wilson's cousin told a reporter from the Anchorage Daily News that Wilson raped her more than 40 times in 1996, when Wilson was 18 and she was 12. When she tried to fight him, he began choking her. Wilson's younger sister reported she was only three years old when Wilson, then 12, sexually abused her and another child while he was babysitting them. Both women regret not stepping forward sooner to tell their stories and put Wilson behind bars. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the last frontier.